I'm your host, Derek Scott III. I have been looking forward to sharing this episode. Stephen Rankin is a lifelong United Methodist and elder in the Great Plains Annual Conference. He has spent most of his ministry among college students and in higher education. And he's now retired, but also serving a local congregation. I have so much respect for Steve. But as you'll hear, there are some very specific reasons why I wanted to have him on the show. Many would categorize Steve as a traditionalist due to his theological commitments. And the truth is, I just don't think you can curate a conversation about the future of the United Methodist Church and not include folks like Steve. I was grateful for his willingness to join me. And and friends, there is so much wisdom and clarity in this interview. I'm honestly more hopeful for our future because of it. So let's not waste any more time. Grab that notebook and that choice beverage, and let's listen to this interview with Steve Rankin. Dr. Stephen Rankin, um, it is good to see you, and I'm really grateful that you joined me on Up Bar of the Conference. Thanks for being here. You're quite welcome. I'm glad to do it. It's good to see you. It's good to see you. I I have several memories of being in the same room with you, um, there, and a lot of them, all of them are campus ministry related, mm-hmm. um, and I remember sitting in a room, and I don't even remember what city I was in, but sitting in a room with you talking about the future of higher education um, as it relates to uh, the Wesleyan witness and campus ministry. And, and I, and I don't, I'm saying this on the record so that people have it. I said to myself, gosh, it'd be cool if I could be like Steve Rankin. (laughs) (laughs) And part of it was um, you seem to be a person living at, the intersection of higher education, but I never got the sense that you were stuck in an office. I always got the sense that you were on the ground with students. So even um, as a professor, like I, I didn't get this sense that you sort of just rolled in, gave your lecture and rolled back out. Like there, you seem to have stories and, and I'll say it this way, you seem to, and I mean this in a much more metaphorical way, but you seem to smell like you had been around college students. Ah, yes. And and that, again, for me, that was, you know, I, as I get older and, and I don't have the same, you know, energy capacities I used to have, mm-hmm. there's still this deep desire in me to never get so far into the institution of the church or whatever work that I do that I'm not spending a great deal of time with college-aged young adults. And I just saw you as a person who somehow figured that out and found your niche uh, in, in being able to do that. So that was just the, the way that you inspired me sort of in the beginning. Well, um, thank you. That's, that's encouraging to me. I'm, I'm glad about that. Well, and, I, and again, I'm really grateful for you and, and the example um, but I know there's more to you than smelling like college students. So um, I'd love to hear um, how you became 
a Christian, a follower of Jesus, but specifically a United Methodist follower of Jesus? How did God's provenient grace work in your life to bring you to the UMC? Yeah. Well, I am a preacher's kid. Um, so there, there you have it, right? I was, I was born into a Methodist family, but there, there are a couple of wrinkles in, in that part of the story right away. My dad went into the ministry full-time later in life. So he, he often described himself as a jack-of-all-trades, master-of-none kind of person grew up on a ranch in Western Kansas and, uh, and you, you know, lived a pretty rough life for a while, had his own dramatic conversion experience in a Methodist church. And that's really, uh, he had grown up in the Presbyterian church. So what, what got us into the Methodist and then United Methodist church was, was dad's own experience. Um, and so I was a little kid when he went full time. He, he quit his job and went full time in the ministry. And, and so that part of my story is I literally grew up in the church and I, I, have, I have snippets of memories, even from the time I was a small child, of um, inclinations of responses. For example, um, when my when my, my paternal grandfather died, my parents were older when I was born. I'm the baby of the family. My, I, I didn't really know any of my grandparents because the ones who were still alive were much older. So anyway, uh, so this, my grandfather had died and we're in the funeral home and mom and dad are there and I'm with them and I'm like five, six years old. And I said uh, something like, do you want me to pray? I have no idea why I said that, <laughs> but you know, some, I mean, mm. some provenient grace at work there. So I, I have a few moments like that uh, to get closer to the point here. Um, went through confirmation mm -hmm. in, in junior high, middle school, uh, took the confirmation questions, the vows of church membership questions seriously, answered them sincerely. So I think of myself as a, a sincere believer in Jesus from that time forward. Uh, but like many teenagers, I, I had all kinds of stars in my eyes and desires and this and that. And so it really wasn't until my senior year of high school, not long before I graduated, we had a lay witness mission in our church. We always lived in small, rural. Dad's churches were small. I love, I love these rural churches, 50, 60 people or less, you know? Uh, so we were having a, a lay witness mission and I, uh, I was gone for part of that weekend, got home Saturday night and I walk into the back of the church and there's a guy up front. This is, so you, now I'm telling you how old I am. This was like February of 1972. I'm a senior in high school and it's, we're still, we're still in the hippie days. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm tracking. These are the days, these are the days when a single acoustic guitar in worship was, at least for the part of the world where I was living, that was way out there, you know. Mm. So this guy's mm. up front giving his testimony, long hair, shoulder length hair. He's wearing a chambray shirt, jeans, Levi's and boots like biker boots. And he's got on one of those leather jackets with the fringe hanging off the sleeves, you know. And uh, he was giving his testimony. 
It's very matter of fact. And he had the kind of typical testimony that when he was a hippie, very much into the drug scene. Jesus Christ got a hold of his life, changed his life. So I'm listening to this testimony and thinking I've grown up in the church. I on the outside, I'm a good kid. I'm a compliant child. Teachers like me, all that sort of thing. Kind of the disgusting goody two shoes kind of guy, (laughs) Uh, but not not really walking with Christ. So I, I, I kind of came face to face with my own hypocrisy. I looked good mm. on the outside. I wasn't so good on the inside. Um, and so that evening I went up to my bed after everything, the bedroom, after everything was over and I sat on the edge of my bed and very matter of factly committed my life to Christ. Uh, there, there wasn't a lot of emotion in it as uh, later on, a, a guy who was very influential in my life for a while is a very emotional boy. He just loved people and he'd tear up. And when he's talking about people, his jowls would shake. And anyway, he used to say, it's time to get down to business with God. <laughs> and that kind of was, I didn't know at the time when this happened that that was uh, later on when I met him, that that statement now helps me make sense of that moment for me that I was ready to get down to business with God. And something clicked in me after that. I was really committed to walking faithfully and growing and learning. And uh, as we all do, I continue to have issues. I went to college and, you know, college is college, right? So, yeah, yeah. but I was, I was really committed to walking the way of Jesus and got involved in ministry right away leading a youth group and stuff like that. So as they say, the rest is history. Oh, wow. Love that. So the rest is history. But I guess for me that some of that history comes in uh, with your ministry to college students. So tell me a little bit more about how you found your call to ministry and I mean, in general, call to ministry. Um, but I'd love to get that bridge to how you landed in the academy um, as an elder. Yeah. Well, I'm an old man, so I got to tell a bit of a story here. You're you're asking me to tell the story, and I and feel we like are here this, for it. Yeah, we are here for the story. Good. This this is. I think this is important background. So right away, uh, I, I told about what I regard in a way as my conversion story, even though it's extended. But um, about that time uh, that I mentioned, I was invited to be in a singing group. uh, And we traveled around to churches in the area. We'd sing, share our testimonies. And right away, the leader of the group, Betty Jo Banks of Blessed Memory, asked two or three of us to give brief messages. So not just a testimony, but like a two or three minute devotional. And right away, people started saying to me, you know, you ought to be a preacher. Well, I didn't really want to be a preacher. I love my dad. I respected him. But to be honest, and this is so, it's humorously ironic. uh, I... I didn't have a very high impression. I used to think, okay, 
Methodist ministers are shy bookwormy types who couldn't get a real job, so they went into the ministry. <laughs> I, I, sometimes that checks out. Keep going, Steve. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So I love my dad. He was just a guy, you know, he grew up on a ranch, old cowboy. We lived in farm areas and he, he related well to the farmers and ranchers. And so, you know, I'm, that's kind of my, that's kind of my environment. I, I was never a macho man by any stretch, but I was just a guy too. And I didn't want to be, I didn't want to get trapped in that kind of stereotypical thing. So I wanted to be a coach. Um, and we had, you know, moving around Methodist preachers kid, I was not a great athlete, but sports was the way I sort of got in small town, Mm-hmm. get in. I was mm-hmm. good enough that I could contribute and get to know people. So by the time school started, if I'm the new kid that summer, by the time school started, then I know some kids and it doesn't feel so weird to be the, the new kid. Because we're talking about, you know, I graduated in a class, high school class of 24. <laughs> okay. So it's very, very small. Uh, all right. So so I didn't want to be a, I didn't want to be a minister. I wanted to be a coach. I went to college and, and majored in things that would, would prepare me for coaching, but I was always bookish. So that this is the funny thing. I was the bookwormy type. I wasn't shy so much, but I loved reading. So, and I, like I said, I got involved in youth ministry right away on a volunteer basis and then kind of in a part-time staff position all the way through college. And and a United Methodist district superintendent would ask me to preach in these little churches during the summer when pastors were on vacation. And, and then, you know, I was so I was getting a lot of encouragement. Uh, I graduated from college. I did coach. I taught public school for a couple of years. I did coach. And this is why I'm telling this much of the story. As a coach, as much as I love sports, I learned two things in that experience. The first is I don't really have that killer competitive drive that the successful coaches really have. Mm. Mm. I use the word killer there very advisedly, but just, I mean, very, very competitive. And I just wasn't that competitive, even though I'm pretty competitive, but not that much. And the other thing I realized is that I was more interested in my, my athletes as people. So their personal develop development um, was more important to me really than at the end of the day than winning. I, uh, so I, through a a couple of other nudges about that time, we, I resigned from teaching and, and by then I was married. We'd been married a year. Uh, We went away to seminary to start responding to the call. So at the same time, I'm going through the candidacy process and, and all that. Um, but I was a very hesitant respondent to this call because I still thought, you know, ministry on the ground. Uh, I just know the life of a pastor, you sort of get trapped in a way in certain duties and responsibilities. And it does make one sometimes distant from real people, real life. Okay. So, so anyway, Time passes. I graduate from seminary. We spent three years in Italy. That was a fantastic experience, learning experience. Oh, my. In the middle of seminary. What city? Just outside Rome. Okay. An expatriate congregation, not not United Methodist, but but 
kind of in the Wesleyan tradition and a lot of Methodists in the church. Uh, so that was fascinating. It was a great theological education. Um, came back, finished seminary. I remember standing on the on the campus where I went to seminary, holding my diploma in my hand. It says Master of Divinity. And I said to myself, I don't feel like a master of anything. And that led to graduate school um, and eventually a Ph.D. Um, and so during that time, during the grad school, I'm I'm full time grad student living in in the Chicago area. And I'm I'm uh, almost full time on staff. And so for me, this is like the perfect con combination. I love the academy. I love books. I am very bookish. I like reading what the scholars are writing. I didn't want to get trapped in the ivory tower. Uh, and so always all through seminary, through graduate school, I'm, I'm either pastoring or on the staff of a church. And, and that kept me grounded in a certain way so that when, when I finished grad school and we're back in Kansas, I went back to pastoring. I got this job then I got this opportunity to, to go to a college, uh, Southwestern College here in Kansas. And now this is a, an entirely new direction for me. I, I did the graduate work thinking I'd probably wind up teaching in seminary. I wanted to help prepare people for ministry, but I didn't want to get stuck in the ivory tower. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. one foot in the church, one foot in the academy. And so now I'm back, I'm back in Kansas. And anyway, this opportunity came to go to work at the college as a religious studies professor and campus minister. So as sometimes happens in college, two, two positions are made one and yeah. it fit me perfectly. Now I was also, you know, it was a little crazy and <laughs> I didn't necessarily do a great job at everything because I had two jobs instead of one, but it fit me perfectly. But I didn't know about college kids. I hadn't thought about, college ministry and all that. So, uh, and now I'm getting, this is maybe is a good stopping place when I get this part told that after I had been in college work for like four or five years, um, still kind of wondering where my place was. We were in a chapel service and the chapel had picked up, students were coming. It was a typical contemporary chapel service led by students. As I called us, us old folk, we would stand in the back. We met in a room that was a multi-purpose room with movable chairs. And so we're standing at the back because it's pretty close to standing room only now. Uh, and we're back there and I'm, I'm, we're worshiping and I'm watching these college kids worship. And, uh, and it was just one of those moments I felt like God spoke to me and said, your job is to pour your life into these students. Yeah. And that settled it for me. I mean, that mm -hmm. settled it. Um, I never once doubted afterwards where my place in ministry is. And so even though I'm pastoring now, we there's a community college here in town. And so getting involved, you know, getting involved. Right. So what you said earlier about about my my the sense you had about me, about really wanting to stay on the ground with students, that's that's. That's true. I, I have loved 
the one-on-one -on -one conversations with students where they're trying to sort out their vocation. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, yeah, so that's, that's how I heard my call to college ministry. I really wish this were a podcast about college ministry because <laughs> that I, I've had that same moment mm -hmm. uh, standing in the back of a room. And I imagine that for you, it's, it's, it's probably, you know, been reaffirmed, not just staying in the back of a standing room only space, but even just sitting across from a student over oh, coffee absolutely. and just that, that thing where Jesus says your job I love yeah. how you said that because I heard the same thing. Yeah. Your job is to pour all that you have into yeah. these young people. Oh, Steve. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. So can I just say this? So two days ago, I went to Wichita, Kansas. So one of my students from those days who heard a call to the, her, the ministry, she changed her major, became one of my students. So she's now a college professor at a school in Wichita and asked me to come and talk to her students about a certain part of Wesleyan theology. So it was really cool that I, I am talking to the students of my student, you know, that was pretty cool. And also, again, I've, I've been around a while. <laughs> the, it's, it is the privilege of preaching in a, preaching in a congregation that is being led by one of your alumni. Yep, that's right. Yep. Oh. Yep. We could do this all day, Steve. We could do this all day. One of the reasons that I invited you on this podcast was you penned an article a few weeks ago, yeah. a few, a couple of months ago. I guess it's yeah. maybe even it's three been a or while. four. Yeah, um, one of the groups within the United Methodist Church. Um, uh, it's called the Confessing Movement. Um, mm -hmm. I encountered, uh, I first heard about them in my 20s um, when I was worshiping uh, and working in a local congregation. And my pastor said, um, you know, Derek, you should look into this group. They seem to have a vision for the future of the United Methodist Church. Um, and, and I think that this, that will resonate with our congregation. And I'll just be honest, at the time, I had no sense of the, 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 the broadness of the United Methodist Connection. I honestly thought that everybody kind of saw the world the same way in United Methodism. We just all used different songs in our congregations. <laughs> I had not connected the dots of, um, and even the kind of church that I was in was a very non-connectional congregation, if that makes sense. We didn't have a lot of interactions actually with the DS and um, with the, the cabinet or the conference in that sense. So that was my first encounter with them. Obviously, I've learned a lot more over time, um, particularly over in the last few years. But I, I really appreciated your article lifting them up and, and it was celebrating the confessing movement as, as it was coming to a close. They had decided that they, they're part of, of renewing the United Methodist Church. It sort of ended, at least this is my understanding, so feel free to correct me, but their, their role in renewing the United Methodist Church had ended because of the work, I think specifically of the Wesley Covenant Association and the launch of the Global Methodist Church. Um, and so I'd love, to, I'd love to hear a little bit of your celebration of the confessing movement, um, if we could go there a little bit. Sure. 
And this, this topic gives me the opportunity to emphasize or stress uh, the importance of nuance. Uh, yes. And I'm going to try to make, make it very clear, even though it's nuanced. So um, the confessing movement in its original vision focused on theology and really what we would say are the core foundational tenets of the faith with a Wesleyan understanding. So uh, the conviction that a Wesleyan experience of scriptural Christianity as Wesley called it. So uh, that, that there's, there's, it's good for the church. It's good for the United Methodist Church, but it's good for the, the church ecumenical. And so what drew me to the confessing movement early and then of course as time passed i had friends who were leaders in it um what drew me to the confessing movement was this this belief that doctrine and life go together um and there is a tendency in united methodism we are we're very pragmatist you know i've said this i i, I mean this I've, I said it kind of lightheartedly and I'm, I, I mean it as a compliment, you know, we just, let's just love Jesus and go do something, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, I find that very attractive about United Methodism, except that there's, there's more to loving Jesus, you know? So loving Jesus involves thinking about who Jesus is, right? I, if I'm going to love somebody, I need to know who that person is. So, so there's mm-hmm. the connection between doctrine or theology uh, and and experience, and I just felt like the confessing movement in its early days, especially, were trying to were trying to bring something more into the uh, into the awareness of United Methodists in general that was really good. Now, I will say this: the confessing movement fairly quickly got involved in some of the political movements of the day. I'm not critical of that exactly. You can probably hear a little bit of the wariness in the way I describe this, but given given the way we decide things in the United Methodist Church and given mm-hmm. the pressures in our denomination, uh, I understand why the confessing movement got linked with other groups uh, fairly quickly. Uh, and I have many, many, many friends in these movements and I love them. And, um, I believe they're really trying to do good things and the right things. And they're, you you know, this is, uh, they're they're deeply sincere, uh, Mm -hmm. about all that. So at the same time, um, I, I didn't, I did not want to get caught in political debate. I love conversation. I'm willing to debate, you know, I'll tell you what I think. In fact, you'll hear that in this session, I guess, Mm. but, but I did, I don't want, I I want it to be, this is where the kind of the scholar, if if, I use that word very advisedly, but where the scholar kicks in, it's important for us to understand 
topics, ideas, people, right? It's first I need to understand. Uh, and then I can know what my response should be, right? Because I have an opinion. I have a viewpoint. The other person has an opinion, viewpoint. My first job is to understand. Um, and I don't love the emotions, you know, as a as participating in general conference, jurisdictional conference, witnessing more. That feeling in the room when people are on the verge of, of at each other's throats that I just, I don't like that. Yeah. Not many people do, right? Mm -hmm. Not many people do, even the people who are deeply involved in those kinds of things. But I just didn't have the, I didn't have the heart to, to be there myself. Mm -hmm. You know, I would sit down over coffee during a break and, have a conversation with someone or I've been asked on occasion to come and talk to a group. And obviously the group had a different viewpoint and they wanted somebody like me to come and talk to them. Right. So I've done that plenty as well. Uh, I've been in controversy in that sense, but I don't want to be in controversy when there's always a vote involved because yeah. whatever we're talking about, what people are really thinking about is how do we swing enough votes one way or the other? And right. I, that's where I, uh, that I, I just didn't feel like that was my vocation, my calling. So, um, and I, I think those are still live issues. And I think one of the reasons we're having trouble as a denomination is because we really haven't done a good enough job of talking through the theology things. We have talking mm -hmm. points, mm -hmm. but we don't really have extended conversations without the implication of it leading to some sort of vote. Right. Right. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate that. And, and I, I appreciate that we, we did move away from the confessing movement and, and we started talking okay. about this wider. I, the, I appreciate it because in, in some respects, what I'm trying to do with this podcast for better, for worse, is cultivate a conversation mm -hmm. where those who feel called to stay in the United Methodist Church begin to listen to each other better, hear each other's stories, and how our stories and our development are leading us to hear Jesus in some specific ways. I want us to learn how to listen to that better. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love to unpack a little bit of a conversation we had before I pushed record around labels. Ah. And you, so someone sees an article celebrating the confessing movement mm -hmm. and across the spectrum, they would probably then label you a traditionalist. In the same way that someone sees um, a gay black lay leader doing anything <laughs> in the United Methodist Church and would automatically label me progressive. Mm -hmm. And those, those labels seem to work for certain things. And I think they work around votes, um, mm -hmm. as, as you lifted up a second ago. But when I sit down and I start talking with people, these labels all of a sudden are unhelpful. 
because they make a bunch of assumptions about positions and thoughts and even theology, theological commitments that may or may not be true. But the assumption that the labels bring almost short circuit these conversations. So Steve, I'll ask you a question in a very specific way and feel free to nuance and bring accuracy and completely destroy my question. <laughs> I am here for it. What label do, do, you, do you claim? What label is most appropriate um, in this conversation of the United Methodist Church and our continuance and bar the conference? Now destroy my question, Steve. Right. <laughs> well, it is a, your, your question points to the inevitability of labels. I've struggled with this for a long time. Um, I don't like them. If, so really, I want to be known as a Christian. Mm. I want to be known as a person whose life shows Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, I'm a sinner, so I got I got issues. So I don't I don't always do a good job meeting that that goal or desire. Okay, so that's that that's how I really want to be known. But I also know we have to have shorthand ways of referring to groups of people, ideas, movements, etc. So. Caving to the inevitability of this of, of this sort of thing, I would be known as a traditionalist or a conservative. Uh, theologically, I I believe what our doctrines, the the Articles of Religion and Confession of Faith, assert about the nature of God and the Christian life. Um, um, and so that uh, that's where I would be that's where I would be pegged. And, and so at the end of the day, I'm okay with those terms, even though I'm very aware that they do create a certain kind of impression with people who are willing to settle for the first impression based on a word. Mm. And that I, I find this problem kind of across the spectrum, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. um, there's a there's a sort of dehumanizing effect of it so that you know you become a category not a person oh i wow. strongly resist that tendency um so to use these labels when my conservative friends say things i will sometimes try to admonish them a little bit about about that. So to me, it's not, you know, my tribe, we're really good at this and your tribe is really bad at it. You know, that's, we, we can, we can look at this and see the difficulties across the spectrum, but, but those are the labels that, that are going to be put on me and I will live with them. And I'm just praying all the time that they don't squelch conversation because now, oh, now I know what, I know everything about who you are and what you think, right? No, mm. you don't. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Wow. I mean, honestly, this is the this is the basic. If if I want to be treated a certain way, then I I need to treat people the way I want to be treated, right? Yeah. Yeah. It, 
I appreciate this. I mean, there's there, on so many levels, Steve. Just the, um, but I, 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 I'm always, I, I'm curious in 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 many respects, and I and I've found that sometimes the diversity of theological viewpoints, for some, not all, maybe it's only two, um, the two people I'm talking to, <laughs> um, but the diversity of viewpoints feels more personal than like a personal thing than it is a a theological discussion or a discussion about policy um it 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 feels like to say i don't know if i completely agree with this particular conviction it's almost like i my friends feel like i'm talking about them hmm. and and not about I don't know if this resonates at all, but my, my question that I'm interested in is, I, I think it, at least in the way the United Methodist, United Methodist Church currently exists, there is this diversity of theological beliefs and convictions, uh, perspective. And I'm wondering if you felt your core convictions challenged as a United Methodist, by other United Methodists, and how how you work with that? How is it is it personal? And I like I I don't have a judgment if it's personal or not. I'm just curious if it is how you, how you work with that. How mm-hmm. how you sort of handle that? And and my sense is you're doing what you can to stay at the table. Um, and the academy creates a different kind of environment for these discussions as well. So I'm. I am asking a question about core convictions, but it's specifically how you live in a space that is almost by rule pushing against some of those convictions. Does my right. question make sense? I think so. And as usual, I've got I've got more uh, more thoughts than I can share. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you're right. Uh, being Theologically Orthodox, uh, Evangelical, Wesleyan, as Billy Abraham would say, a thoroughgoing, uh, a thoroughgoing theist, for example. So all those things, yeah. Um, many, many times across the the decades now, I've I've felt this pressure, and it's sometimes it's subtle. So let me back up and and kind of think about two or three things. For example, we could talk about in-group and out-group, right? We can talk about yeah, that. Um, yeah. And almost all of us have had the experience of being, knowing I'm part of the out-group, right? I'm in this group and we're talking and everybody assumes we all agree and I don't know exactly how to say what I'm thinking and all that. We've all had that experience. Okay. The in-group and out-group phenomenon is inevitable. But for Christians, when I'm with my people, I need to be aware that there may be people in the group not not going along with this, but they're also not speaking up, right? So there's got to be there's got to be this awareness of um, of that, of that fact, right. Of that possibility at least. And so, so that's, that's one thing. Um, 
another thing I'd want to say about this is that part of, I think part of our issue is that we now, we, we not only just feel it personally, it's, it's a little bit like an existential threat. The opposing viewpoint is like an existential threat to me. I must resist it. Yeah. Uh, and some of this, of course, has leaked in from the wider political culture of our of our country now. Uh, that's, I think, virtually everyone agrees with that. But again, as Christians, if we really, this is where if I if I really believe in the power of God, if I really believe in the work of the Holy Spirit, then I can. I can recognize that fear I may feel, but it does not have to control my response. So here's something I learned in seminary. Um, I, I, because of my viewpoints, I was a I was a minority viewpoint in in the seminary that I attended, and I often found myself sitting in classes, hearing these kind of offhanded remarks that we make about groups, you know. I could tell that the, the people they're talking about now, when they use the word fundamentalist, that includes me, but I'm not really a fundamentalist, hmm. but I'm, I'm certainly a lot closer to them than the way this, you know, the way this mm -hmm. person or this group is talking about it. So I, I was aware of that. And, and so then it's, you know, okay, what battles do I fight? What am I willing to, what am I willing to speak up about? And uh, so I would I would choose my battles carefully. But anyway, so I'm in my room, seminary days, and I'm praying. I'm complaining to God. Oh, it's terrible. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm being picked on. You know, <laughs> mm -hmm. I was having my own little pity party with with God. And this is one of those moments I felt like God spoke to me mm -hmm. and said, you don't need to worry about protecting my reputation. In fact, you can even lose the argument and I, I will still get the glory because you're bearing witness. That was very freeing to me. Now, you know, some people might say, well, how do you know God spoke to you that way? And that, that, would, be, <laughs> that would be another conversation, right? But I'm yeah. convinced God spoke. And it was very, very liberating for me to know that I could, in kindness, speak my peace and not worry so much about whether or not somebody misunderstood me or whether they took offense. I don't like to cause offense in people. So, <clears throat> but I could, I could not worry about the outcome of the conversation. Mm. Okay. So uh, let me say one more thing. And I know I'm kind of ranging around here, but, but I'm tracking and I'm, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good. With regard to theology and doctrine, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this and trying to listen to the debates and how people characterize other people and all that. And I do think there are some hard realities. When we talk in the United Methodist Church about the diversity of thought, well, that's obviously the case, right? My question is, if we're going to be a something together, you know, any, any group that is identified as a group will have some boundaries. So we may disagree about where the boundaries are, and that's part of the conversation. Where, where does a person draw the boundaries? So 
let me let me use another label the most progressive united methodist for us to be united methodist that mm -hmm. progressive united methodist wanting to draw the circle wider wanting to mm -hmm. have a big tent methodism maybe or maybe not maybe that's the centrist view and not so much the progressive view i don't know about that but anyway yeah. back to my point where do you draw the line where are we okay this is united methodist that's not united methodist we all have to draw lines the, ch the church has to have boundaries. Our core doctrines serve as those boundaries. Um, and I think that's kind of a fact that we, when we start talking a little bit loosely about not worrying so much about theology and talking more about mission, we mm -hmm. all believe in Jesus. Let's, you know, let's get involved in the mission. Generally, I can agree with that. But, but in, in reality, when we start bumping into these really difficult topics and where people are just intractably opposed to one another this we can't all we, we can't all just be everything to everybody right there's got to be a boundary so where where is the boundary and so that's where for me doctrine does more than just it it it, it helps us see where we think the boundaries ought to be and that's a that's a legitimate conversation that we need to be having Steve, I am just deeply appreciating this conversation and I'm, I'm going to move it along because uh, we, we need to. Um, but I'm, I'm going to ping back to something that I heard you say and then uh, use that to move us forward of the ways that these conversations around theology and doctrine then get wedded to politics within the church and even voting and, and that definitely breaks down conversation um, because now we're talking about who's going to win, who's going to lose, and how are we going to get a few more votes on our side. Um, so that takes me then to the, the really contentious special session of General Conference in 2019. Right. And, you know, I, I'm constantly reflecting as someone who was on the floor and actually sitting in the very front. So watching bishops is there watching what's happening and just the, the ways that that space, I think it's fair for me to say how it just kind of devolved um, because of this, we got to win. Um, it, 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 and I, I, more, I think that's what I mourn the most. As you reflect on what happened in 2019 at the special session specifically, mm -hmm. whether it's you know wearing the label of traditionalist or just thinking being being committed to a specific vision of who we should be as followers of Jesus, what are some of your thoughts of what happened there and and um, what has happened in the United Methodist Church since then? Yeah, well, I I attended that general conference as uh, as a participant on the prayer team, so I was there, and we had quite a few people on the prayer team, so we were able to 
spend fairly large portions of time sitting in the session observing. And, you know, I, I had friends there, um, so I'd talk to them and that sort of thing. And, um, and it really was, um, this is such a lame way of saying it, but it was a deeply sad moment for us. Um, because I think we could see people who up to this point, delegates up to this point, relatively respectful opponents of one another. But now it had it, it, in 2019, it just got personal in a way. Um, it was as if we could see trust breaking down. Yeah. yeah. And now it's not just a matter of I disagree with someone. It's a matter of I'm, I'm using I, you know, as an example. Now, this is not exactly how I felt. Mm -hmm. I felt very sad, gr grieved. But, uh, but you, you know, once, okay, I now no longer see the opponent as a, a, a person of good faith arguing for a, a point they believe is very important. Now that person is dishonest, sneaky, underhanded, uh, has bad motive and is acting in bad faith. Hmm. And again, it doesn't matter centrist, progressive, traditionalist, whatever other label that when we get to that point, um, now the task becomes entirely different. Now, I mean, if, if I could have waved my wand in that moment, I would have said, okay, we're going to stop talking about sexuality and the other stuff. Let's, we have to figure out how we reconcile at the relational level. So when I think about the dissolution of the denomination, um, it's not just structural. It's not just the birth of a new denomination. It's, it's much deeper than that. And at some point, we're going to have to go deeper. Uh, let me take a little side trip. Uh, go for it. Because I think this, I think it's relevant at this point, but while I was still down in Texas, not not you know still working at SMU and and participating in conversations and and reading stuff and you know I was really trying to figure out okay where am I going to land with all this I've never been anything but United Methodist uh, and but but I could begin to see and this goes back to 2016 I think for me the 2016 General Conference was a little bit the handwriting on the wall so. Yeah. 2019 yeah. was kind of inevitable, I think, based on 2016. So I've, you know, um, I've said this more, more than I should, I suppose, but I'll say it here too. I felt like I was watching my mother die a long, slow death. Yeah. And it was painful. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Uh, so then in moving up to Kansas and eventually taking this appointment, I'd been thinking about we're coming back to an area where we used to live. We have friends up here. We're reconnecting and our friends are, we, we, you know, we have 
we disagree. Steve Wilkie's a good friend of mine. We don't we don't see eye to eye on this, but he and I have been really committed to remaining friends. Mm-hmm. We, you know, we we're committed to that. And so this is how I say it in a small town like where I live, you know. So if if we're gonna split, then we have to do this in a way that helps people understand and we work through the feelings because we're going to have feelings, but let's, let's stay together working through the feelings. And then if, if you go to this church and I stay in this church or I go to that church and you stay in this church, we've done it cleanly enough that when we bump into each other at Walmart, we don't pick different aisles to walk down, right? We can see each other, say hi to each other, and it won't feel so awkward. Hmm. And Hmm. especially in smaller areas where people do bump into each other all the time, um, that's really important because we do live in the same town. This may be a little, some people might say, well, you're being a little bit like Pollyanna there, that that's just not real. I don't know about that, but I'm committed to however the organizational matters work out, wherever people wind up connecting to a church. If these are people I know and I see them someplace and we've not agreed on this, I still want it to feel like just a normal encounter where a couple of friends or at least acquaintances are are talking to each other and it's not that big a deal. Mm. Now, there's a theological conviction there. Uh, As members of the body of Christ, I believe this is how we should act, right? Mm -hmm. And for me, you know, the denominational association at that point is of secondary importance. I'd love to ask a a follow-up then, particularly in the last little bit that you offered, that regardless if someone stays or goes, that you, you can still see them in the grocery store and, and, mm. and, and I, I think what I heard you say was, and it's not a big deal. Um, what, what do you think of the folks that this is a big deal, whether it's these core convictions are so personal that, that to even that, you, that to not join them <laughs> is its own offense. Yeah. Well, I, at a very basic level, I think, I think human beings are created in such a way that we're, we're, we are drawn to what we take to be of ultimate value. So if, if I really care about something, uh, it's going to grab my heart and uh, and it's going to set me up to respond to people in a certain way and if they don't feel the way i do you know that's going to create some issues for me um so i think at one level what we're witnessing we we should know probably would happen then then to me the question becomes do we know what we're talking about if we if we think we really can't stand each other so much that we can't be together anymore, are we sure we know what we're talking about on the issue of sexuality and any other thing, right? Are we sure we know what we're talking about? And I would say many, many, many times, I don't think we really know what we're talking about. 
And so I'm always inclined to want to back up a step, right? And say, well, let's figure out if we're really talking about the same thing. And then if we are, can we figure out how to have a, the kind of conversation that leads to understanding, even if it doesn't persuade anybody to change their minds? Mm. Now, I'm saying this. I'm saying all this. I want to be very clear about this. I'm saying all this as one who believes deeply in a Trinitarian view of God in, in the, uh, you know, in preaching Christ and him crucified. He rose bodily from the grave. Those are ultimate to me. But here's what I'm trying to get at. Because of what I'm con committed to, at some point I'm going to have to say, well, whatever that is, that ain't Christian. But here's the point. I don't have to be mad at that person because I'm now realizing Okay, you and I are really not in the same group. We can we can still be friends. We can still every we can still talk about the issues. Every relationally, everything can be the same. Now we just have some clarity. Mm -hmm. And and but but there there again, that's the boundary issue. At some point, all of us are going to come to the conclusion that whatever that is, it's not me, and I'm. So like I've said this numerous times as, again, using the label as a traditionalist. Uh, if a person believes that that. As we call it, full inclusion, and that means, you know, dropping the restrictions that are in place now. If a person believes that's a matter of justice and God, God is leading us this direction. OK, I don't agree with that. I'm not angry at that person. That's a good faith commitment that they're making. We can, you know, talk. Let's, I, I want to understand. How did you get there? What sources? How do you put them together? What's, you know, what's the chain of thinking you're using? All those kinds of things. I don't have to be angry that they're someplace vastly different from where I stand. But the, the, but the denominational question then does become live. Can can these two things or these two positions really exist in the same organization? I think that's a question we have not really thought about very well because most of our, most of the most vocal people uh, are just really already trying to persuade people to come their way. And some of our study groups and things like that, and this is my opinion and you know, it's an outside opinion because I've not been on those groups, but, I think too often we were already kind of wired toward what the end game is r rather than what, what we, what we need to be thinking about. Mm. I think the commission on, on, on the way forward, I think in many ways it was really committed to the sort of understanding that I'm talking about, but I think eventually it slipped away from that vision. And so members of the commission became more and more isolated from one another, even though individuals bear witness to, okay, we don't agree on this, but we've become good friends. You get, you get those kind of individual stories, but again, mm -hmm. collectively sort of the, the, the cumulative impact is I think even the commission at the end uh, sort of fell apart. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Do you think 
It's such a reductionist question. Do you think that kind of everything that's transpired since General Conference 2016 has lacked true holy conferencing and discernment? I think on balance, I would have to say yes. Mm -hmm. um, one of the sad facts, and again, people across the spectrum re recognize that we've slipped into this mode. But the, to me, the sad fact is that when we're talking about denominational affiliation, the way we talk, the tone of voice, the emotions that we share look a lot more like popular and political culture rather than the body of Christ. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, so that's a long answer to your question. Yeah, I think we've, there hasn't been much holy conferencing. Hmm. Small groups, individuals, a lot of people are trying, but at, the, at, at a higher stakes level, which the denomination is, that's, you know, we're talking power, mm -hmm. we're talking money, we're talking property. When the stakes are high, I think it's tougher there. And I don't think we've done a very good job. I don't have any particular individual in mind, you know, in making this criticism. Um, because people in those positions, the ones leading, whether they're leading to the new denomination or whether they're leading to support the existing denomination, they bear a lot of responsibility. I, I think I, I think what I'm trying to say is I feel sympathetic. I, I, I have some grasp of the sense of responsibility they feel to protect something sacred. So I can't say that I blame them, but I, I still have to make the judgment that we really have not done a very good job at Holy Conferencing. Uh, I wish we both had an extra hour. Uh, I, 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 I mean, I, I asked the question, mm. you know, have we even really conferenced around these issues? And I, and I asked that, and, and, okay, I asked that question because I agree with you. I don't mm. think we have. And I say that as an out gay male. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, some of it's hard because sometimes I come sit at the table and my presence as not being apologetic, both about my sexuality, but even more so about my faith, mm -hmm. that I've somehow found a way that these two things are not opposed to each other. Right. But yeah. because I can do that, that is its own, and again, it's this weird thing. It is its own offense before I even start unpacking how I got there. Mm -hmm. And so it's a question of how, how do we do that? And this is just more personal. How do I, how do I engage the conversation when I, a person's already close to me? Closed, right? ED closed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Wow. Derek, I, this may be somewhat a function of my age, uh, but if a person is already closed, you know, we could talk, the, the psychologists, especially in 
the field of education have long talked about foreclosure, right? If a person, if a person is already predisposed not to hear you or to filter everything you say in such a way as to reinforce what they already believe, I wonder if there's, I think the only value in talking to a person like that is to, in that sense, to deliver your own soul, bear witness, state the truth, knowing that likely it won't have the kind of impact you want it to have. Mm-hmm. And then I, I find myself more and more, if, if I become convinced that, you know, before words come out of my mouth, this other person already knows what I think and how I feel and what my motive is, I won't bother. Mm. You know, there's just mm. no, no reason to try. That can sound a little fatal, fatalistic, pessimistic, and maybe, maybe it is, but mm. uh, I think there's some value in silence sometimes. And, you know, you don't have to take too much responsibility then. Mm. Mm. I don't know. No, those are hard. So last we talked, it's okay if this has changed, but last we talked, your intention was to remain United Methodist. Um, Mm -hmm. What's, what's, what's keeping you here? Um, What's up, right? What's up with me? (laughs) Yeah. Well, again, thinking I've thought long and hard about this and prayed. This is a prayerful. I've come to this conclusion prayerfully, somewhat hesitantly, I guess. I, I sometimes worry that I'm there's some part of this picture I'm not seeing. And so if if that part were to become clear, oh, then everything would fall into place. That hasn't happened yet. Um, but my answer. Because I'm a lifelong United Methodist and because I've had a lot of experience in small town, rural America. I know all these loyal Methodists, United Methodists, they've been Methodists for 40, 50, 60 years. They love Jesus. They love their church. It's the only church they've ever known. They don't really understand the ins and outs of what's going on. They've been very trusting of their clergy leaders of the annual conference system. Now, many of them are feeling stuck. They don't want to leave, but they're not sure they want the changes that are coming, you know, just to be just to be honest about that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I do not feel like God has released me now. Other, I have a lot of friends who have left. I'm, I mean, God bless them. And I, I don't feel about the global Methodist Church the way a lot of people who are staying feel about the global Methodist church. Uh, That may be another topic, but anyway, so, so God bless them. I think, I think this division eventually became inevitable because of especially the past few years and some other things, but, but, but with all that said, I'm aware of the people who either 
don't want to leave or don't feel like they can leave. And I don't want to just walk away. Now, the people who have left, I, I don't, I just want to be clear. I, there's no hidden implication that I think that's what they did. Like they just walked away. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. That's, that's there. They've worked that out with God. Uh, God bless them. I love them. They're my friends. We're still working together. But for me, in this time and place, I'm, I'm not going to walk away from these people. And the people who are drifting away, you know, I'm, I'm very aware of the people who they're quietly going and they've been going and they're just drifting away into other, other churches, denominations. We have something good to offer. I don't want them just to drift away. So I'm trying to do something right in my own little way. I'm trying to do something. Do they have to stay in the United Methodist Church? Not necessarily, but do they drift away into XYZ Church? No. The Wesleyan way of being Christian is good. I want to help with that. I want to help with these desires. And I think staying where I am positions me the best to do that. I've been a you know, preacher's kid. I, I would, you know, and I'm old, right? So, so in, 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 in that sense, the question doesn't press on me. If I were 40, 45 and trying to figure out my future, that's a tough question, but for me, it's mm. not as hard a question. And so I can stay now at some point I'm going to have to, well, I have to do this now, but at some point on the key questions, you know, I would have to, I would have to go with my conscience. You know, I, I have to maintain integrity with regard to a moral understanding of certain topics. Um, but I, until that day comes, I'm not planning on, doing anything right i'm happy to be where i am i love the people i'm working with they're loyal united methodists we're trying to sort this out in a good way mm -hmm. and i th i think this is where god wants me long answer sorry it's a great answer and and helpful how do you think let's say that we are moving towards an inclusive right church uh where we remove the prohibitions and restrictions. Um, we have queer clergy um, without, without apology to that. We are, those who want to are able to perform same gender unions and marriages and right. without penalty. Um, how does someone with a, I'll use the label for now just to get us to the question. Mm -hmm. How does someone with a traditional historic evangelical theology live in that kind of space? Yeah. Well, my answer is not entirely satisfying to me. So let me just say that up front. <laughs> That's fair. This may sound a little bit heretical from a United Methodist uh, book of discipline point of view, but another thing I've been thinking about is that the denomination, the name, the brand is, is a bit of an abstraction. So the United Methodist church, what is the United Methodist church? Well, there, that's a two part answer. And this, both of these come from the book of discipline. So the annual conference is the basic unit of the church. 
Now we're all connected across conferences and all that. And I think, I think that's a point that hasn't been adequately thought about by a lot of people, but that's another matter. So, but still at the annual conference level, the United Methodist church here and the United Methodist church down the road are connected in a variety of ways, a covenant relationship for clergy, uh, mission and ministry funds, uh, various ways. Even so with the, with the annual conference as the basic unit of the church, and we do a lot of things, ordination, for example, uh, candidacy, ordination, all that. We do that at the annual conference level. Where people live is the local church level. And so the, the tangible, concrete, on-the-ground reality is the local church. So I'm, and I'll just admit, I, I kind of struggle with my own thinking here because um, for the United Methodist Church, our doctrinal standards are the doctrinal standards. So what we say we believe, now I, I, I readily admit, you know, it's, let's, let's be honest, it is to a significant degree an on paper thing and not really not really. We don't talk seriously about doctrinal boundaries at the at, at these at this core level. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but as long as as long as the local congregation feels like we together can follow Christ faithfully according to to use Jude three, the faith once delivered, mm -hmm. and because moving elsewhere has its own set of questions and risks. I think it's perfectly appropriate to stay where we are as long as we can. Uh, and the, the last thing I'll say then is I think then given how you sort of set up the question, I think then every local congregation is going to have to have policy positions. Hmm on on mm -hmm. these questions will mm -hmm. we do gay weddings in our church would if the bishop wants to send send us a, a married gay pastor for example are we okay with that so there so a congregation would have to work out those kinds of policy questions which means they're going to have to spend time thinking through what do we think about the way God made us? What do we think about, you know, just all these different things? And how do we come to the conclusions that we have? And that's the sort of thing we can't do that, that work with a vote hanging over our heads, because then yeah. people are feeling pressure to come to a conclusion, often prematurely. So that's what, again, that's why I'm, that's what I would say to churches who are staying, who are traditional or, or clergy who are yeah. staying, who are traditionalist. Wow. Do you have hope for the United Methodist Church going forward? <laughs> you know, I got kind of emotional earlier. I, 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 I kept it together pretty well, but that feel like I'm watching my mother die. That's, that's a moment for me. Uh, there's a, I was reading, I use the book of common prayer and the readings in the book of Com common prayer. And mm -hmm. so I, one day I was reading Psalm 102. I think it might be, I get these, I get the references confused. And so I, I don't want to take too long here. 
Yeah, it's Psalm 102, 14. And in the Book of Common Prayer, the way it said is, I, I, for I love, it's talking about Jerusalem, ruined, in ruins, you know. And the, and the Book of Common Prayer says, for I love her very rubble. And the New Revised Standard says, for your servants hold its stones dear and have pity on its dust. So I kind of envision the United Methodist Church as a denomination in, in shattered like that, in ruins. Hmm. But what happened? The, the ruins were rebuilt, right? Another psalm I love, revive us again, O Lord, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I believe God's going to settle some things out. And, and, I, and, you know, my hope is in, in Christ and the work of the Spirit. And so to the extent that we're faithful, I think God will bless that and, and really great things can happen. Um, and I'm honestly not worried about divisions and things like that. I just believe we're at a point now where people, we need to stop fighting. People need release to go where they feel like they're, they can serve the Lord the most faithfully. And I, I do understand what that means for a denomination like ours. But to me, that looks better than, than some of the other alternatives. Steve, I've been speechless for the vast majority <laughs> of this conversation. I just, I want to thank you um, for joining me today. And I, I want to say, um, I am grateful that you're staying in the United Methodist Church because I want to be denominationally connected to uh, you. Well, thank you. Which has so much weight and then doesn't have as much weight. Um, but I, 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 I don't just want to be cousins, spiritual cousins. I, I, mm. I want to be in, I do hope that there's a sense at some point that while we have differing theological commitments on certain issues, that there is a sense of that, that we are a tribe. Mm. And I don't know how we get there one day, because mm. um, that, that, that's definitely going to be something that only God could do. Right. Um, but I, I continue to feel like specifically to you, that you and I are more connected than disconnected. No and, doubt. And I'm I agree. grateful for it. <laughs> Amen. Steve, thanks so much. Thanks so much for today. You're welcome. Thank you for having me on. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Bar of the Conference is produced by the team at Wesley's Revival, a ministry of Studio Wesley. Subscribe to this show on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or Google platforms so you don't miss a single episode. Thanks for joining us, and see you next time.